Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, starting in verse 36 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 24, 36 to 51. Matthew 24, 36 to 51. Of the many things that are on my wife's list of concerns, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say all this because she's not here this morning. She's in Texas, so if you tell her I said this, I'm going to deny, 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 okay? Of the many things that are on her list of concerns, few things rank quite as high as the flowers in her flower bed. I will have you know, my wife has something of a green thumb, and she invests a lot of time in plants and flowers. And she cares for them, she spends time making sure they're protected from all the harsh environments that might come, wind and, and rain and, and cold weather and, and hot weather and all of those kinds of things, and, and then when the flowers come about and bloom, I mean, you've never seen somebody as happy as my wife during springtime when the flowers start to bloom. She'll tell me quite frequently what flowers are about to sprout, how many buds are on each plant, and all of those kinds of things. And then often when they bloom, she'll snip them off and she'll put them in a vase of flowers, and sometimes she'll just leave them at people's doorsteps and then, you know, run off and things like that. And sometimes she puts them in our own living room, and, and we have whites and yellows and reds and all these kinds of things that just sort of brighten our living room. And I am really grateful for that. Uh, the Lord has gifted her with the gift of adornment, and she can just, I don't know if that's a spiritual gift, but it, I guess it is, because uh, she definitely has it, and she can uh, brighten up any room and any place where she goes, and our, our house, our, our, our flower bed, our whole front yard is really blessed by that gift of adornment that she has. Now, I'm grateful for all that until she goes out of town, and I have to take up the list of her concerns for the flowers. I don't have that kind of concern. She studies weather forecasts copiously. She knows what the weather is going to be weeks in advance. The weatherman doesn't even know what the weather is going to be weeks in advance. She'll tell me, you know, next year, the weather is supposed to be really bad for the petunias. I don't even think we have petunias, but whatever it is, the weather's going to be really bad. See, rain is not just rain for her. Rain is God's fertilizer. But too hard rain is not good. Too light rain is not enough. It's just the right amount of rain. Cold weather is not just put on a jacket for her. It's the grim reaper for her flower bed. You have to know. Before she left town, she put stakes in the flower bed that are really tall and she left me with strict instructions on Wednesday, when the temperature drops below 40 degrees, you need to take the frost cloth out there and you need to put it on top of these stakes that will perfectly cover. You need to take the chip clips and you need to chip clip the frost cloth all the way to these stakes. But don't just drag the frost cloth over the stakes. You have to fan it like a blanket <laughs> over the stakes because you could injure the plants. So I'm out there like an idiot in my front yard fanning this frost cloth over the plants, putting the chip clips on there. If you look closely, you'd say, is, that ch is it chip clips? And bricks, actually, hold it down just in case it got so windy that the frost cloth goes away. 
What she understands, which often escapes someone with a black thumb like me, is that in order to produce a beautiful arrangement in the flower bed, it takes cultivation. Constant cultivation. There are no holidays. There are no breaks. There are no vacations. When we leave out of town, we have to put, appoint someone in charge of the flower beds. And I'm sorry for the instructions that she gives you. Because I know I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. If she takes one break, if she leaves the flowers without cultivation, resting from that cultivating work means death for the garden. In our passage this morning, Jesus is continuing to answer the disciples' questions. However, in verse 36, the topic changes completely. It's shifted as Jesus is now going to issue a stark warning to the disciples. They need to pay very close attention because it's a stark warning for them. Let's turn to our text this morning, Matthew 24, 36 to 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But, you, but know this, that if the master of the house had known, what in, in, known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would, not have, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with, the drunk, with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've read this text, so difficult to understand sometimes and, and, and even more difficult to apply, so we need your help. We pray for your Spirit's influence as we read, as we think, as we study, as we apply. You open our eyes and our ears and our heart that we may see and hear and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just like every passage, especially in this passage, context is of utmost importance. And so, with that in mind, let's think about where we've been over the past few weeks. Remember, Jesus in chapter 23 has just condemned the Pharisees, and he has given them seven woes. He has walked through seven woes, basically telling them that pain is going to come to them. That's what 
woe indicates there. There's going to be pain coming to them. And we find out at the end of 23 that that pain ultimately means that the Pharisees, the scribes, the people that are leaders in Israel are going to end up in hell. But, in the short term, all of this means that the temple that they serve in is ultimately going to come to ruin. It's going to be torn down brick by brick. Jesus tells the disciples in 24 verse 2, if you go all the way up to verse 2, He tells them that 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 temple that they serve in is going to come down brick by brick. The disciples are impressed by it. Look at this place. It's huge. And He tells them not one stone is going to be left upon another. He tells them it's going to be destroyed which inspires them to ask a question and rightfully probably makes them a little bit nervous. They ask him in Matthew 24, verse 3, when will these things be? Immediately after he tells them the temple is going to be destroyed, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the first part of this question that they ask, when will these things be, is clearly a reference to what Jesus has just said in Verse 2, that the temple is going to be torn down. And as I've said for the last two weeks, verses 4 to 35 contain Jesus' answer about when that is going to take place, when the destruction of the temple is going to happen, which ultimately did take place in 70 A.D. Rome marched in and destroyed it. Now, some will see verses 4 to 35 as referring to His second coming. And there's a lot of you know, debate about that, and there's a lot of you know, angst that a lot of these verses... You know, require because there's a lot of confusing language throughout four to thirty-five, and I, I grant that, and and there will always be debate about that. I suspect there has been since about one twenty A.D. in the church. There has been uh, we have documented evidence. There's debate about this passage and about passages like it since as far back then, and I suspect until Jesus returns, there will be just as much argument, and that's okay. But he's giving them in four to thirty-five all these signs and evidences of the temple's destruction, and why is he doing that? For the express purpose that the disciples, when they see these things happen, will be able to get out of town. He tells them, so that you can get to the hills. When you see all of this take place, when you see these signs, that's when it's going to happen. You need to run for the hills. But in verse 36, everything changes. In verse 36, there's a complete tone change where we get a warning about Jesus' physical return to the earth. So that's the first thing we're going to consider, a warning about Jesus' physical return to the earth. Now, how do we know uh, that he's now going to talk about something different? How do we know now that the thing has changed to him talking about his physical return to the earth? I want you to look at what he says very closely in verse 36. You can go to the next slide if you haven't already. Um, I want you to look very closely at what he says in verse 36, and I want you to see how this drastic change from what he has been talking about and what we've been talking about the last two weeks takes place right there in verse 36. The first thing I want you to see is this but that he starts off verse 36 with. It indicates that there is a contrast between what has come before and what he's about to talk about now. Now, with this word but, it's true. It could be translated but, or it could also be translated and. So one would say, this is a contrast. If it said but, it would say like, however. So all that I've talked about then is about this thing, but... This is about something different. 
Or it could be translated and. This is adjacent to, or this is connected to what we've just talked about. So how do we know which one is which? How do we know how we should translate it, whether we should translate it but or and? I'm glad you asked that question. You always ask such thought-provoking questions. The answer is context. Context tells us how we should translate this. So, first thing, there is this word here that could mean a contrast. That's one that we should draw our attention to. Now, the context here is going to tell us that we should translate this, but that this is a contrast from what he's been talking about to what he's talking about now. Look at what he says uh, previously. He says, oh, look at what he says here in verse 36. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, this is a marked change from what Jesus has been talking about previously. In all the things Previously, from 4 to 35, he has used a plural. Those days. Look at verse 19. For those who are nursing infants in those days. Or how about verse 22? And if those days had not been cut short. Or what about verse 29? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So, so those days tells us that this is an era of time. This is a section of time. All the way from Jesus' resurrection, ultimately culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. This is an era that they are to be watching the signs through. During those days, all of these things are going to happen. You're going to have wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations. You're going to have famines. You're going to have plagues. You're going to have all kinds of different things appear during those days. And after the tribulation of those days, that's when you know it's brimming. It's coming near. But when he moves to 36, he transitions to a specific day, a moment, an instance where everything that I'm telling you now is going to take place. It is that day, the day when he returns. Now, those evidences, I think, are convincing enough for me, right? Looking just at the text. However, there is perhaps nothing more convincing than the tonal change that takes place from verse 36 on. Listen to what he says, or or read it, actually, there in your text. But concerning that day and hour, specific amount of time, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, if you just take a moment to reflect on what he has just said in 36, and the tonal change that takes place there in verse 36... And reflect on those words. I think you might agree that it's marked with a difference from what we've been reading for the past two weeks. As an example, in those days, verses 4 to 35, he says, many will come. He says, they will. He says, you will hear. Nation will rise. When you see the abomination of desolation, he knows that's going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. All warnings. All of these are certainties that Jesus knows concerning the day and the hour that the temple is going to be destroyed. And he's telling them this so that they too will know why. So that they can be prepared for it. So that when judgment comes upon the nation of Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem, they can run for the hills that they wouldn't be caught up in it. 
And the reason he doesn't want them to be caught up in it is because judgment isn't coming upon them. Why? Because they have seen the Messiah and they have believed in him. But the nation of Israel on the whole, specifically the city of Jerusalem, has rejected him. And for that, judgment is coming. Do not be swept up in this. Leave before that day gets there. I'm going to give you all the signs so that you know the exact moment that it is taking place. You know the day and the hour that that is going to take place. However, none of those certainties could he point to if he didn't know the day or the hour the temple was going to be destroyed. Which tells us that now he's talking about something different. All of these tell us that now he's talking about a different time that's in the disciples' future, and I believe still in our future, when he returns for good and establishes his question. I think this, starting verse 36, going all the way to the end, is part, is part of the answer to the second part of their question, which is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He says, well, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not the angels, not the Son of Man, or actually he says the Son. No one knows when that day is going to be. Now you might be intrigued, Jesus doesn't, doesn't know. Well, this is part of his submission to the Father. I believe that's what's going on here. There's a lot of debate about what that exactly is, but I think this is part of his submission to the Father that he is choosing not to know that day. And essentially, he's underscoring the fact that the Father is going to determine and I'm going to go. That's what's going to happen. So first, Jesus says about his return that unlike the destruction of the temple, which has all these signs that precede it, all these different wonders and different things that are going to take place that all precede it so that you will know the exact time my return, no one knows. Not me, not the angels. That is for the Father only to know. You don't need the signs, in other words. And then he says, instead of signs leading up to it, it's going to be quite the opposite. Instead of the signs leading up to it, what's going to happen? Look at verse 38. Things are going to be like the day of, days of Noah. He says that uh, in verse 38, it's going to be like Noah's day when he returns. He's going to say the people are going to be eating and drinking, marrying and given, uh, uh, being given in marriage. So basically it's going to be the same thing as it was the days of Noah. So is going to be the return. They're parallel to each other. Just like in those days, people are just going to be going about life as normal. There's going to be nothing particularly obvious that would point you in the direction it's happening now. It's about to happen. Nope. Now further, let me ask this question. You know, I want you to just take a look at verse 38. I want you to look really hard at it. Study it really closely. Who is the they in verse 38? Who is the they that's standing there in verse 38? They were eating, he says. Who is the they there that are eating and drinking and being given in marriage and marrying and all that kind of stuff? Is it Noah and his family? No, it's not Noah and his family. Noah and his family are not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They know the flood's about to come. They're building a yacht. And they're getting ready to enter it. The trivial things of life, the ordinary mundane day-to-day, -day, is not what they're concerned with. They're concerned with those flecks of raindrops that keep hitting the sidewalk. 
we got to hurry up, got to finish, put those nails in, so that they enter the ark. The they there is everyone except for Noah's family, right? It's all the others. They were going about their normal lives, and he says until, in verse 38, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So there's Noah, and then there's everyone else. Noah entered the ark. And then in verse 39, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Noah was swept away? No! The people outside the ark were swept away. Where were they swept? To death. That's where they were swept. It was the wicked people that were swept away. Now, why do I make a big point of that? Because Jesus is making a parallel between Noah's day and his return. Look at verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Now, the one taken in this verse is going to be swept away as in the days of Noah. Where are they taken? Thrown into hell. The one taken is not the righteous in this parallel that Jesus is making here. The one taken is being swept away and thrown into hell. And how do we know that? Well, one, because of the parallel that he just drew with, Mo- with Noah. But then the second is because at the very end of this passage, he makes another exact same parallel with two servants whom the master comes back and finds going about their day. And he says in verse 51, in, uh, he, that he, or in 50 and 51, that he comes back at an hour they don't expect, he cuts them up and he throws them into hell where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the point that he's just made to them is that the return of Jesus is going to be swift. It's going to be quick. You're not going to expect it. It's going to come like a lightning bolt out of the sky. No one is going to be expecting it. You can't look for signs. You can't look for wars and rumors of wars. You can't look for any of those that are brimming with a sense that he is going to return. You can't do any of that. It's going to be swift. It's going to be just like the days of Noah where all the people that are swept away didn't build a boat. Just like the lazy servant. They're not going to be prepared for that day, and they're going to be swept away, and they will be taken and thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, I know that there are plenty of people, some preachers, many preachers, some probably in this room, that always have read that passage to be referring about a future rapture when people are snatched out of here, taken away, absconded by Jesus. Not only do I think that doesn't make sense in the context of this passage, I don't think it's in there, and I don't think that's what he's saying here in the context, but I think if you read the parables of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this will actually just be a reiteration of everything he's already said to you from the beginning. If you go back through the parables, particularly if you look at the parables in Matthew 13, you will see that they conclude with this same idea, this very same conclusion, very swift return of Jesus, and that the wicked are tossed into hell, that they're taken away and they're thrown into hell. Look at Matthew 13:30. It's going to appear on the screen behind me. Matthew 13:30. 
He says, this is uh, the parable of the weeds and the wheat. They grow up together, you know? And he ends that parable by saying, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Or perhaps even Jesus explaining that parable Ten verses later, in 1340-43, to he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, as in the parable, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Comes back to the same thing he said before. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, or he who has ears, let him hear. Or what about the parable just nine verses later when he talks about separating the wicked from the righteous in the net, in the parable of the net? He says in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So he's going to take them and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is nothing if not consistent in the way he talks about the coming of the Son. When he returns, it is swift, no one knows when it's going to be, and he's going to take all of the wicked, swept together, and thrown into the fiery furnace. Here, cut into pieces, and thrown into the fiery furnace. So Jesus is nothing if not consistent, but this gets us closer to the heart of what Jesus is really doing. I don't say all that just to, you know, bash a particular viewpoint that some of you may have. I'm, I'm, I'm okay if you have that viewpoint, and if after all of this you still disagree with me, I'm fine with that. I'm happy to debate with you on the merits of the text. I'm not convinced that the rapture is in Matthew 24. You might be, and that's okay. The church has been different on that for at least the last 150 years, and that's fine to some extent. But what is Jesus actually saying? What will we do? They might ask. The disciples might ask. How will we know that you're going to return? And and how will we actually be prepared for it? Look, Jesus, how can I put the frost cloth over the flowers if I don't know what the forecast is? If you don't tell me that it's going to freeze, how will I know how to drape the frost cloth over when the time is? But you understand the point of what he's getting at is you need to always be standing outside with a temperature gauge in your hand watching. He says, verse 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You might say, if you're making a parable there, the freeze is going to come at an hour you do not expect. So you need to stand out on the porch, constantly with your finger in the air, with your temperature gauge, watching for that temperature to drop. Don't go in and sit on your couch. There are no vacations you must always be watching for his return. Just as he says in 42 to 44, just as the homeowner has to be ready at all times for the thief to come, he cannot take a break, he always has to be watching so that he knows what hour the thief appears, so you must also be ready. So it brings up another good question that you're going to ask. What does it mean to be ready? I told you, you always ask such good questions. 
Jesus is going to answer that as he explains to us the second thing that I want us to see, the consequences of our preparedness. He's going to explain what that means in sort of a parable, if you will. So in addition to this parable that he's going to give us from 45 to 51, he's going to give us two more parables that we're going to cover in the next two weeks that demonstrate a very similar thing, how to be ready, what he means by being ready as a disciple. So first, let's look at verse 45 all the way to 47. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So the master leaves, and with it he leaves a list of chores, and he leaves for an unspecified amount of time, and he leaves all of his servants in charge to take care of his household, that is to feed his family, and that is to take care of all the affairs of his household, any chores that might be left for him to do. And the servants that he leaves behind to do this, there is a portion of them that are wise and a portion of them that are wicked as they respond to their master's disappearance. And so the wise servant, what does he do? Well, he goes about doing that which the master had left him to do. So the reward that he gets is what? Rest? No. More work. The reward that he gets for his faithfulness is that the Lord gives him more responsibility, puts him over more, gets us back to, remember Genesis 1, what were we put here to do? We were put here to work. Now work makes us tired and we think it's a bad thing, but it's not. Fruitful, faithful work means that you get restored to that garden picture where you work again in the kingdom of God. Of your father. So now let's translate this parable into a warning for his disciples. Remember, he's warning them to be ready, and he gives them this parable. Jesus has already given them hints about before, like in Matthew 18, about what the church is going to be and what the disciples' role in the church is going to be, what sort of leaders they're going to be, and what their responsibilities to the sheep and to all the people that are around them are really going to be. And he's building their roles in the church and teaching them what their responsibilities are. But he's also going to commission them at the end of the book. A passage that I'm pretty sure almost everyone in here is going to be familiar with, the Great Commission. Yes? You're familiar with this passage? Yeah, of course, right? We are sometimes called Southern Baptists and we're sometimes called Great Commission Baptists. So we should be familiar with this. I'm just going to read it just in case we're not. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That is affectionately referred to as the Great Commission. Now, why is it called the Great Commission? Because this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. This is the responsibility that he has placed on the disciples there at the end of Matthew. And we see that as being placed upon all of us. So essentially, this is the work that he has left his disciples to do in his absence. So Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is not just closing out the book of Matthew. 
Matthew 28, 18 and following is reaching its tentacles all the way back through the entire book, but particularly wrapping itself around chapter 24, verse 44. And it's as if Jesus is saying to them through this parable, do you remember when I said to you, be ready? Always be ready. Do you remember how the wise servant responded to the master's absence? What being ready meant for that servant, it meant that he began doing what I had left him to do, what the master had left him to do. This, Matthew 28, 18 and following, this is how you stay ready. This is what I'm leaving you to do. This is your commission. This is your responsibility. This is how you go about doing what I've appointed you to do. This is how a servant of God stays ready. The Great Commission is like a giant suitcase into which so many things are packed. First of all, your own obedience to the Lord's commands are packed in there so that you can teach others to observe them as well. He says that in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Your own obedience is packed in there. Your own heart of faith is packed in there. Why? So that you can disciple others in faith. Sharing the gospel or whatever. Your own participation in membership in the local church is also in there. Through which disciples that you evangelize are being baptized. That's also in there. Your own growing in understanding of the Lord's commands so that you can teach others in the Scriptures of what they actually mean. How can you teach the Scriptures if you don't know the Scriptures yourself? Your own growth in knowing the Scriptures, it's in there. All of this is actually packed into the Great Commission. You normally just read it as evangelizing. It's not just evangelizing. It's all of the things. It's all summed up in the Great Commission. It's the definition of what it means to be ready. It's not setting dates on your calendar. You know that? It's not setting dates on your calendar. It's not looking around for signs. It's not looking through the scriptures to observe, the, see if you can figure out and crack the Omega Code so you can see when he might actually return, circling the date on your calendar because of the math that you've just calculated and going to some mountain somewhere so that you can be ready for his return, do you know that that's actually disobedience to what he's saying here? That's actually unreadiness. Now they depict that as readiness. That looks to us, they are the pinnacle of readiness. They're the definition of readiness because they've got dates circled on their calendars because they're looking to the sky for Jesus to come back. Remember what happens to the disciples at the beginning of Acts when they're looking to the sky for Jesus' return? Now, God is very merciful to them in that moment. He sends them an angel to go, what are you doing looking at the sky? Go about doing the work that I've set you here to do. It's obvious that is disobedience to the command masquerading the whole time as obedience. Notice that the faithful servant in this parable doesn't sit on a bench looking out the window waiting for his master to come walking down the aisle. Instead, he's working. That's not readiness. 
Both servants are actually going to be surprised when their master walks through the door. Both servants are going to be. The wicked servant, though, is going to be surprised because he didn't expect him to come, and now he's got to, oh, hurry to make it look like he's busy doing the work that he told him to do at the beginning. A faithful servant is going to be doing the chores. Master could come back at any moment, and I'm surprised to see him, but I'm actually joyful to see him return. You know why? Because I want him to see the return on investment that he made in me, the servant. That's what I want him to see. That the work he put me here to do by the Spirit's power has produced fruit. And Jesus, I want you to see the fruit. I want us to rejoice together in the fruit that has come about by this list of chores. And his reward is more work, which the servant that was busy at work is happy to do. The wicked servant, however, is the one that thinks that the delay of the master is an excuse for laziness. I don't have to do this. Who knows when he's going to come back? He goes gets drunk with all the drunkards and has a big time, parties it up. There are plenty in our world today that have been lulled to sleep by 2,000 years of Christ's absence. The master has walked down the road and he has gone to a far country and we have no word of when he's coming back. And so far it's been near 2,000 years since his resurrection and there are plenty in the churches all across the world that have been lulled to sleep by his absence. Jesus hasn't returned. And on top of all that, along with his absence, there are so many venues of entertainment that have taken his place there's new shows released on Netflix every single week. Do you know that? Every single week, new shows released on Netflix. There are endless amounts of things to be entertained by day in and day out. We're not short on any of those. On top of that, your work week or school week or whatever bleeds into the weekend, then bleeds into the next week. Before long, you're constantly working. Those numbers aren't going to crunch themselves. I mean, let's be honest. Before long, when your pastor stands up in front of you and says, I'd like y'all to show up at 9.15, where we're going to come together and we're going to be educated on the Scriptures. We're just going to study the Bible. Or Sunday school classes that are meeting, Gladys Moffat and Liz Carden, classes that are meeting right now, studying the Bible. We open those up, and I tell you, I want you to be here at 9.15, where we're going to grow in our understanding of the Word. And then, on top of that, hang around from 10.30 to 12-ish, emphasis on the ish, where we're going to open the text, and we're going we're to sing, we're going to pray, I'm going to read the text, we're all going to read the text, we're going to read it together, I'm going to preach. And you're thinking... You want me to come here to this campus for near three hours and study the Bible? So boring. Now, you'll happily sit through an Alabama game for three hours. Or, college students are honest, right? We love that about them. You happily sit through that game for three hours. Or if it's two teams that are not yours, 
We want to see Alabama blow out everybody. That's true. But if it's two teams that are not yours, A&M, LSU, a couple years ago, seven overtimes, bleeding into the next day, it's past midnight, and you're bleary-eyed watching the TV. I've been invested in this game for five hours. I'm not going to turn it off now. I've got to see what happens. Some of you have been praying for overtime. More of this game is better. Five hours of entertainment without batting an eye. Three hours of studying the Bible? That is crazy. Don't you know I got a roast in the oven? I want to warn you. The master is going to come at an hour you do not expect. And I promise you, when you see him return, three hours a week, five hours a week, 15 hours a week, is going to feel like not enough for what you're seeing. Would you think about that for just a second? Because that changes every decision you ever make from here on out. Imagine when the sky opens up and before the entire world, Jesus Christ is revealed. Some people are going to be very upset by that. Some people are going to be elated. The ones that are working are going to be elated. But everybody is going to feel like an hour and a half in worship. That was not enough for what I'm seeing. That hour of Bible study, that midweek Wednesday where we were attempting to be educated, it just it didn't even touch the hem of the garment for what is standing before me right now. I can't even wrap my mind around this. What am I seeing? Listen, we believe in the imminence of the return of Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that it could happen at any moment. Not that we'll be sucked out of here. That's not what I think he's saying. This is saying that any minute this could all be over. Every single bit of it. And if you're here right now and you're struggling with a heart that is divided by sin maybe even diving headlong into sin. Maybe you've even stopped really caring about your own spiritual growth or development. Mentally, you might be saying, I believe in Jesus, but you give Him nothing of your time and energy and growing and understanding and learning. You have no desire, maybe even, to share the gospel. Or you think maybe that would be nice, but... I don't ever do it, and I don't ever really make time to do it or anything like that. You never make time in your schedule to actually make disciples like He has appointed you to do. You, you don't make any time in your schedule to grow as a disciple of Christ. Not to just understand more of the Bible itself. I want to warn you that you're in dangerous territory. I mean, real danger. Real, true danger. It betrays a heart that is not going to be excited when you see the return, but is going to quickly run to the closet to try to grab the vacuum. Because in his absence, he just didn't care. 
What does it mean? First, before I say that, I want you to be reminded of what the gospel really is. There is good news that even in that heart of apathy, Christ died for that too. This is the demonstration of God's love for you. That He knows your heart is not going to be always maximally satisfied with Him. That sometimes in His absence, you're really going to want to take a break and just sit on the couch and veg out. That's the fickleness of the human heart, and He knows that about you. And Christ died for that too. And in that is the love of God demonstrated for us. That He took out His wrath on His Son and not on you. So you can come forward in faith and trust that even in the fickleness of my own heart, which I struggle with week in and week out, Christ died for that. I can confess it, I can own it, and I can move on. But I think there are two big things that I want to wrestle with this morning. I want you to think about. What does it mean first to be a Great Commission church? What does it mean to be a church that is enthralled with the Great Commission? That is a gospel-sharing, evangelizing, missionally focused church? Most churches in America translate that to we give a lot of money to missions. Do you know that you are outsourcing the job Christ put you here to do. You're paying for it. Now, the person you're sending money to, they are doing it. Presumably, they're sharing the gospel with people. But you're outsourcing it. That's not to say we shouldn't be faithful with our money. But a Great Commission church is one where each member takes the Great Commission upon his own shoulders to do it himself. I want to make disciples. I want to evangelize the lost. I want to teach them to observe all that, I've commanded, all that he's commanded us. That's a Great Commission church. One that doesn't just give, but goes. You don't have to go to Africa. You don't have to go to the furthest reaches of America, where it's pretty dark. You don't have to go overseas at all. You can actually have your neighbor in your house who's de-churched, perhaps doesn't even believe the gospel, on Sunday mornings is just getting ready to watch football. You can have them over for dinner. And you can begin opening the conversations of the gospel. Where do you go to church? Oh, why don't you go to church? These are the seeds that begin the gospel sharing process. You can have an immature Christian over to your house or meet them at a coffee shop to teach them how to observe all that He has commanded us to do. You can do that. And it's your responsibility to do it. If you don't do it, you're not ready. You're not going about doing the work that He left you here to do. And it should be a warning to you that that's what's happening. The second thing that I want you to work, want you to think about, work through your mind, the importance that Jesus is driving at here is that daily cultivation of a heart of faith is your most important task. 
Daily cultivation of your own heart is your most important task. In other words, there is nothing in your life that is morally neutral. There's nothing in your life that's morally neutral. Not one show you watch, not one behavior you do on a regular basis, not, not one thing that you can possibly see, observe, hear, or do is morally neutral. You're like a gardener. Everything you see coming at you is potential blessing or danger. Everything could damage or replenish. Everything could be fruitful in your preparedness or it could be harmful in your preparedness. There's a question that we often ask ourselves as Christians. Well, is this sinful? That is a weak question. It's a weak question. Don't get me wrong. It's a important question to ask, but it's the minimal standard of righteousness. Is it sin? Of course we should never participate in sin, but it's weak because the better question is, is it beneficial? Does this help me in some way grow more prepared? Or does it hinder me? The same thing that hinders you might benefit somebody else. So you can't just make a blanket statement across everything, but the proper question is, is it beneficial? Quit asking, how do I get free from sin? How do I stop struggling with this sin? I wish I could just stop with this sin. Instead think, how can I pursue Christ with such force that I don't even have time to be enslaved by sin? How can I, from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to sleep at night, pursue Christ with such force that I have no time for sin? Another way I've heard that stated is, be so busy doing you don't have time to don't. How do I pursue Christ with such force? It takes daily cultivation. There are no holidays. There are no breaks. Holidays from cultivation means death for your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word, and I pray for the effect of your word to hit the hearts of your people, and I pray for the Spirit's impact here. There's nothing I can do to convict anybody in this room. But I know your Spirit moves amongst your people. The Spirit does move among us. I know that He is with us. And I pray that as He holds forever those He loves, that He will also impact us and convict us and move us into righteousness. That we would be found doing upon His return. In Jesus' name, amen.